Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to today's AOA. We've got a lot of issues on the docket, so we're going to get going here in just a moment. We will be speaking in segment two with Brian Winnikins of WRDN Radio in Durand, Wisconsin, about a troubling announcement that Ford Motor has made about their electric vehicles coming forward. And then in segment three, we're going to get an update on the COP27 conference. This is that major UN climate change convention happened over in Egypt this year. And we'll be speaking with Quill Robinson from the American Conservation Coalition, who took a delegation over to engage in these discussions. And we're going to hear what the global conversation is on climate change. Here in 2022. At the end of the show, we're going to talk with Julia Harris. She's the senior policy analyst on the Rural Health Project with the Bipartisan Policy Center. Last week was Rural Health Awareness Day. We're going to check the temperature on how rural health care is keeping up. Before we jump into all of that, however, we have a trifecta of issues impacting the transportation and the marketing of America's grain and feedstuffs. We've got a rail issue percolating. We've got low water level on the river levels, and we've got labor challenges up and down throughout the industry. Joining us to run through these concerns is Mike Seyfert. He's the president and CEO of the National Grain and Feed Association. And Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Happy to join you. You know, as we think about those issues, of course, there are different levels of intensity. The one that the conversations are focused on today, Mike, is this pending rail strike. Give us an update on where you think this industry could go here in the next two weeks. Well, I, I think it's a real question right now and a real concern. I think, um, uh, you know, the, the two major, two biggest unions came back on Monday, um, and, and I think there was hope um, and, you know, optimism that both of them uh, we're going to approve uh, the agreement from September 15th and that that would maybe help bring uh, the three smaller unions along. Obviously, one of the bigger ones uh, has rejected it. Um, and so now we have four uh, that ha that are voted to not ratify that agreement. And our understanding is that you know, if an agreement can't be worked out, um, December 9 would be the strike date. Um, it had been potentially December 5th, but the one union that um, had a December 5 date, um, they have pushed it back now to, to December 9th. So that would be when we'd be looking at potentially for a strike um, or, or a lockout. And I think um, a lot of concern uh, about whether um, uh, the unions and the rails can, roads can get something worked out by then. And so we and a number of other agricultural organizations and national business organizations uh, are really um, doing a full court press right now on Congress. We've got a bunch of meetings scheduled next week um, explaining to them how uh, how critical this is and how severe the impact would be on not just agriculture but the entire economy and that if there's not an agreement among uh, the railroads and the unions, they've got to get something uh, passed through Congress and worked out before December 9th because we, we just can't have a shutdown. Um, and even if December 9th is the target date, you know, we saw back in September, particularly on, on some of the more hazardous uh, cargo, some of the fertilizer, other things that are being shipped, they're going to start to slow down and wind down some of those shipments a, as much as a week out. And so um, everybody's talking about December 9th, but I think you're probably going to start seeing some impacts, you know, next week if, if it doesn't look like a deal's on, on the table. 
And Mike, the pressures in the rail industry have been huge already. We've got trains running now, but can you give us an update on what the cost to book some of those cars have exploded to here in recent months? Yeah, you know, typically, uh, and we've seen it somewhat, particularly here being driven um, with the water issues on, on the railroads. And I don't have updated numbers from last week. I think the last numbers I saw were from November 3rd um, or, or maybe the week after. And historic last year at this time of year, um, cars on the spot market would have been being able to be booked for about 150 a car. Um, our understanding a couple of weeks ago is that it was at 1,000 to 1,500 a car. Um, and in October, when when the barge rates were, were really high, and they still are, but when they were kind of at their historical highs, um, we were hearing a 1,500 to 2K uh, on the spot market. And so, definitely a an increase in the in the cost of those cars um, versus where we were a year ago. Yeah, Mike, that is is so troubling, a 10x increase year over year in the cost of freight alone. You mentioned the challenges we're also seeing on the river. What's that doing to your members, and how are these two factors coming together to make life difficult as we head into winter? Yeah, well, I think the biggest issue, obviously, on on the water issues, and I think everybody's aware at this point of the challenges on the Mississippi and Illinois rivers, especially with, with the barges and the shipping. But basically, right now, with the water levels where they are, um, due to some rains that come up a tad, um, but normally the barges go down uh, the river on what you would call a 12-foot draft. Um, they were down to nine. I think they're at nine and a half feet now, but you're still down two and a half feet from where you would typically be. And then a barge tow would normally this time of year be going down the river about 45 barges in a tow, and that's been limited to 25. So in a nutshell, basically, Every tow that goes down the river right now is approximately 50% less than what would normally be going down the river. Um, and so that is obviously creating challenges um, for getting it down the river, the speed at which vessels can be loaded uh, to go overseas. We've also had members um, who've had challenges where elevators a lot that are along the river, um, that normally they would be loading those elevators out um, via barge, they can't. the water levels are so low that they can't get the barges close enough uh, to the elevators to get the booms out over them to fill them up. And so that's where you've also heard of some issues of uh, some producers, you know, not being able to deliver to some elevators because of that, because if there's not a rail, if there's not a trucking option and they can't get the barge there, it, you know, it's it's really difficult to load out those facilities. And so that's a challenge. And then obviously you have some of the rail challenges that have, that we've seen throughout the year and you can push some of that uh, corn and beans and wheat uh, off the barge into the rail, but there's only so much capacity that you can move uh, on rail versus the barge because um, you, you know barge is, a, is much more efficient um, and you can put a, a significant more number of bushels on a barge tow uh, than you can on a shuttle train. So, Mike, these events are are rapidly getting closer, both that strike date line, deadline of December 9th and, of course, the low water level in the Mississippi. What are your members doing to prepare for these potentially catastrophic upheavals in the supply chain? You know, what we're hearing uh, from a lot of our members now is that they are, uh, I think some are working uh, to try and uh, book additional trucking. Uh, others are trying to uh, pre-position or get, you know, uh, as much uh, moved in advance as they can. Um, but you're, you're certainly hearing of a number of our folks that are working to make contingency plans. But, you know, um, if pretty much, uh, set, if six of the class ones are shut down um, and you're looking at the water levels you are on the Mississippi uh, and, and you're talking about 50% less going down in every tow, 
that and, and six railroads shut down, there's only so much you can do. And there's certainly, you know, we're all aware of the trucking issues and the trucking capacity and, and the lack of truckers. And so uh, there is contingency planning going on, but um, it, it is a uh, it is going to be a perfect storm if, if we end up with these low water levels and and the rail issues. It certainly is, folks. We've been speaking with Mike Seifert, NGFA president and CEO. Folks, the NGFA will be having their CEC conference December 6th through 8th. You can get on the NGFA.org website to log in. Mike, thank you so much for joining us for the update on these incredible supply chain difficulties we could be facing. Thanks for having me, and happy Thanksgiving to you and all your listeners. Same to you, sir. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we'll be speaking with Brian Winnikins of WRDN Radio in Durand, Wisconsin. We'll be back with more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. At Bravant's, Our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Thanks for joining us today, folks, and especially thanks for joining us on the dial. If you would, take a look at your radio and see where it's tuned. We've got affiliates for AOA that carry us on both the FM side of the dial and on the AM side, folks. And for a lot of us in rural America, that AM side of the dial is very, very important. And that created some conversations last week at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters because we were dissecting a recent news announcement from Ford Motor Company. Joining me to bring us up to speed on what's happening here in the auto space and with AM radio is Brian Winnikins. He's the owner of Farm Broadcaster at WRDN, served as past president of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Good morning and uh, thank you. Let's talk about what Ford announced, Brian, with their electric vehicles coming in 2023. They're making some changes. What is one of them? Well, the big changes is in their Ford F-150 Lightnings. They are going to take out uh, the uh, AM receiver so they won't provide AM radio on those uh, new F-150 Lightnings. Those are the electric uh, versions of the pickup truck. So the all-electric Ford Lightnings, a pickup truck used uh, in theory by farmers and contractors, folks who tune in to AM radio, won't have it. Brian, what has Ford said? What's their rationale for a move like this? Their reasoning is, is that it's too expensive to uh, have the receiver be able to uh, receive AM radio because of the electric motor. That's They're saying it would cost too much. Okay. All right. Now, is that legitimate to you, Brian? I mean, AM radio is vital for so many folks who I think in particular drive pickup trucks. Has Ford responded to any complaints or concerns on this issue? Not yet. Uh, for myself personally, um, I don't I don't agree with that, that it costs too much. Um, they have had AM receivers in their prior electric vehicles already. So uh, to me, I don't I don't agree with that. Mike, even in my 1961 Oldsmobile 88 that I had in high school, that had a tube AM radio with a big generator on it, not an alternator, a generator, which is an electric motor. One day the AM radio wasn't working. It was getting all kinds of interference. I worked at a service station. It was a $3 part, a condenser. Replaced it and everything worked fine. There are ways that they can do this. And, and again, a, a $70,000 vehicle potentially even if it would cost 50 bucks for them, I mean, really? Someone's going to spend $70,000 and they can't even get AM radio on it? Yeah, I, and, and Brian, I mean, this is already happening. I know you've spoken with a lot of folks who are passionate defenders of AM radio and the service it brings, particularly to rural communities across the state. And you've had listeners, as I understand it, who have noticed that perhaps radio quality has been declining in these vehicles. What's, what's happening and what should we be listening for when we're buying a new vehicle? Well, when, when I... When with my station, uh, my engineer who uh, helped design the AM stereo, AM Sequam stereo, he converted us to AM stereo here uh, last year. And a lot of farmers, they have old work trucks that have an AM stereo receiver and they noticed right away. I had a bunch of them call me and or stop down to the station and they always said the same thing. Well, my old work truck from the, the 90s, 
the radio sounds better than my $70,000 truck that I have now. Why is that? And it's because they've lowered the quality of the receivers to the point to save money to the point that the receivers really, it's not that I'm sending a bad signal out. It's the receiver in that vehicle is just a poor quality receiver. And frankly, to me, and even to some of my farm listeners, they say that's unacceptable. Yeah, you'd think, especially with the stickers that are being hung on the, the the dashboards of some of these new vehicles when they're in the parking lot. Brian, I know this was a topic of conversation there at NAFB, and I know you've worked a lot with the FCC over the years on various licensing issues. Uh, Nathan Simmington, one of the commissioners, had the chance to speak at NAFB. Can you talk a little bit about what, what were his remarks? How do they see this shift towards AM or, uh, I guess, against AM radio on the part of these manufacturers? Well, Commissioner Simmington, you know, he pointed out that farmers, the majority of farmers are still relying on AM radio uh, for not only the listening to this show, but uh, the, their local farm broadcaster, local high school sports, uh, church services, community thing, things like that. It's a quality of life issue. And Commissioner Simmington said, you know, the vehicle manufacturers are asking for spectrum, okay, for the autonomous vehicles. Well, then the FCC should be saying, okay, you know, we'll we'll look into that, you know, to provide that spectrum, but you have to also serve the public interest in providing decent quality AM and FM receivers uh, in your vehicles. And that, that was one of the big things that I took away from that. But Commissioner Simmington is a very big supporter. He feels that AM radio is still very important. Part of it, the reason is, is because he grew up on a farm. And that's what his parents relied on. And, and, and a lot of folks rely on every day, even to listen to this show. They that's are the listening to, to AM radio and to say, well, just stream it. Mike, in, in, you know, for, for listeners listening right now in my area in western Wisconsin, where there's, there's a lot of terrain issues and, and poor internet service, North Dakota, South Dakota, rural Minnesota, rural Iowa, they wouldn't be able to listen to your show. And that's not fair to them. It, 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 especially, exactly especially, right. especially after buying a $70,000 vehicle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just not right. You expect with basic technology as it continues, and AM radio, we've had it for over 100 years. It is trusted. It has existed. It has you know put food on, on my plate personally for the majority of my, uh, my life. I'm a big proponent of AM radio, and it comes with so much more. Brian, one of the things, you, know, you go to streaming, go to all this stuff, that ignores, to my mind, the crucial service that, that farm directors and that rural stations play in small communities. Brian, WRDN, you're out there covering local events you're covering farm stories these things wouldn't happen if if am radio were to go away it's vital to providing I, this level of information isn't it you're right and 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 i always tell people this yes like we do streaming we do the, those things but without the radio station none of that other stuff happens and even on our station website we stream audio you want to hear how good am radio can sound if you go to our website and you listen to our stream you are listening to an AM stereo receiver. You're not listening to it through the control board. You're listening to a radio when you listen to our stream and it's an AM stereo and I will put our signal up against any signal out there and how it sounds. And I, 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 sh I, sh I let a, a couple people at NAFB listen to the station when we were at convention through the stream. Again, it's a radio you're listening to. And they were like, why haven't we been doing this all along? The technology is there. We can do it. It's just 
accountants or someone is saying, well, let's save a few bucks and just take this out. And if they do it to AM, trust me, those of you listening to FM, those station that that the FM is next. The FM will be next. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Nathan Simington, the FCC commissioner, mentioned that three quarters of farmers listen to radio five days per week, with 60% of them listening to AM sources. You know, part of the reason this is happening is there's just not too terribly many of us out here in rural America. So this is a fairly easy thing to cut out, they would think. But for those of us who rely on AM radio, Brian, if we're looking at new trucks, we're taking a test drive, we flip it to that AM dial, we don't hear the sound that we'd like to hear, or perhaps it's been removed entirely. What's the best course of action for those of us who need am radios particularly in our high-end vehicles well two things one if you already own a vehicle con contact the vehicle manufacturer through their website and, and complain we have i've done that personally with uh, my my partner's uh, new vehicle we've complained about how, how poor the radio quality is if you're looking at a vehicle and and you take it for a drive and the am does sound terrible Tell the salesperson and tell the general manager of the dealership, this is unacceptable. For a vehicle this much, this is unacceptable. And, and the, the only way we're going to change this is consumers, the farmers. If you care about this, us broadcasters do it. If you care about this, we need your help and we need you to start complaining to all of the vehicle ma manufacturers and say, look, we expect decent receivers for AM and for FM, not just this big infotainment center that frankly, Mike, causes a lot of distracted driving and is really hard to operate. Can we have something really simple? Right, like a dial, like we used to have. I mean, I hate to be old school like that and complain about the infotainment, but I, I'm in your league, Brian. I think they are a bit too much. But the important thing is, folks, look at the AM radio. If you are listening to AOA on the AM side of the dial, and I know a lot of you are right now, this is important stuff. We're not the only show coming. You've probably got great local sources of contact. Be sure to check that. And as Brian said, make your voice heard. They've got to know that this is an important issue for a lot of us out here in rural America. Brian, if we've got listeners who want to hear what am stereo sounds like where can they hear the wrdn stream realcountry1430.com realcountry1430.com brian winnikins thanks for bringing this issue to my attention and thanks for fighting for am radio out there across the country you're welcome and folks stick around when aoa returns we're going to talk climate change quill robinson of the american conservation coalition will be on to talk what happened over in egypt this past week stick around for more aoa Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you'll lose bush bushels. 
but also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com slash yield. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's get caught up what's going on in this grain and livestock trade as we are nearing Thanksgiving Thursday. Not a whole lot of activity on this Wednesday. The trade is fairly quiet, which is pretty much as expected. Cord is up a little bit, about two to three cents, four cents higher. Soybeans have been mixed a couple of cents either side of unchanged with mixed activity in soybean meal and bean oil. While the wheat market, Chicago KC wheat down a little bit, moderately lower, we'll call it around uh, five cents lower while spring wheat's holding up around unchanged and mixed activity. But again, just a low volume kind of feeling to this trade as we look for the markets to generally drift uh, over the holidays here as we have that light trade volume. However, if we do see a headline create some erratic movement and volatility, that could happen pretty quickly in this low volume environment. Now, the markets will be closed on Thanksgiving Thursday. We'll reopen hard at 8.30 Friday morning in a shortened trading session on Friday. Weekly export sales, we will get those on Friday due to the Thanksgiving holiday and the commitment of traders report. That's going to come out on Monday. So I'm going to back up a few reports here for a couple of days. We're going to be expecting quartered soybean exports to shrink a bit here from USDA over the coming weeks and months ahead unless we see a downturn in production prospects for Brazil. The first vessel carrying corn from Brazil to China is scheduled to depart today. That marks the beginning of a new trade relationship between the two countries. Just how much corn will China buy from Brazil? That remains to be seen. Also in Argentina, traders are going to be watching to see if the Argentine government does another pesos for soybeans program like they did in September. Will they do another one in December? Meantime, livestock trade fairly quiet here today. So far, not a lot of cash cattle activity seen. We're going to have to see more activity before the close of today's session. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this past week, we saw global climate change advocates and activists gather in Egypt for the COP27 conference. That's the Conference of Parties 27 conference. Folks from around the globe gathered there. A number of American organizations sent delegations to get their voices into the mix. And one of those was the American Conservation Coalition. Joining us now to talk about what was under discussion there at the COP27 conference is Quill Robinson. He is the vice president. President of Advocacy and Quill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be with you. Let's start with uh, let's start with what ACC is. If you would, Quill, give us a thirty-second update. What is the American Conservation Coalition, and what were you doing at COP twenty-seven? Absolutely, Mike. So the American Conservation Coalition was founded back in twenty seventeen with the mission of giving young folks on the right of center, young conservatives, a voice on environmental issues. So we realized that for our generation, for Gen Z and millennials. Climate change and the environment are top issues. They're issues that are getting us into politics. But more often than not, so many of the solutions that are being promoted and the voices that are being lifted up really come from the kind of far left. And so we wanted to make sure that everybody else who might want market-based solutions, solutions that can protect our economy and ensure economic opportunity also had a voice in this conversation. And so that's what we were founded to do. In terms of COP, this was our second year there. And we really wanted to make sure that we were doing internationally what we've been doing domestically for the last five years. Uh, and so we participated in a number of dialogues and roundtables. We were part of a delegation of Republican members of Congress who attended the conference. And so we met with a lot of international NGOs and politicians and groups who were really there to make sure that our voices as younger conservatives were heard in this really important international venue for discussing this issue of climate change. So I mentioned that this is a venue where people come from around the globe. They, they fly in to talk about climate issues. Give us a, a little um, Cliff's Notes. What, what is this and how does it work? The actual conference itself. Are you all in ballrooms just talking amongst each other? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that uh, these sort of conferences can sort of be a black box and a bit of a mystery to those who are who don't get a chance to be there. Now, every single year, as you mentioned, there's the Conference of the Parties that's hosted by the United Nations, and there are official negotiations that happen between countries trying to update collaboration on, in the fight against climate change, sign treaties, that sort of thing. Now, that, that happens every year, but around that, you have uh, NGOs and businesses and other politicals, um, political meetings happening simultaneously. And so while there are these uh, diplomatic relationships and conversations happening, the majority of COP is really sort of a massive convention where people are sharing their best ideas um, and meeting new people and networking and trying to figure out how they can collaborate in this fight against climate change. And so uh, think of it as the world's largest convention on climate change that brings people in from um, pretty much every single country, every single sector, and a wide variety of NGOs. All right, Quill. So ACC has been two years in a row. If I think back to COP26, last year's conference, at the end of it, there were a whole slew of announcements of countries coming together to say, we're going to limit fossil fuel production. We're going to limit greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to write these things into law. And then, of course, since then, we had a little bit of an energy crisis and we saw energy prices spike across the globe. Quill, how was the conversation around climate at this year's COP27 different than it was at COP26, mainly because of that the markets have changed? It was a fundamentally different conversation. I think you and I know that we're living in a different world than we were last fall. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, the subsequent shock through world energy markets, I think, has really forced a lot of people uh, in the climate space to think about this issue a lot more soberly. 
maybe a year ago and previous years, people, politicians were willing to sacrifice the energy security of their nations in order to go aggressively towards these climate goals. But I think we've realized that this transition away from fossil fuels is not so simple or so easy. Um, and that having in implementing bad climate policy, it has some really down, really serious downsides. I mean, just look at Germany right now. They uh, they relied heavily on Russian natural gas. They phased out their nuclear energy plants, and now they're facing a really really cold and desperate winter. And this is the the strongest, largest economy in in Europe. Uh, and so I think that the conversations that I was hearing there, whether it was discussing climate change with diplomats from other, from other countries or folks from NGOs is that we're living in a much tougher reality right now, and we need to be much more sober and realistic in the climate policy that we're talking about. All right, so with regard to the climate policy, ACC was bringing to the table some market solutions. Quill, could you highlight a few of those that seem to gain traction here at the conference? Absolutely. So one of, you know, one of the things that we've been pushing for for a while is this topic of natural climate solutions. So that's uh, restoring ecosystems and, cons- and conserving ecosystems and um, implementing agricultural practices that can increase the sequestration capacity of nature as well as build natural resilience. Obviously, this is a topic that is quite relevant to your audience. Farmers, of course, play a very big role in this. Ranchers play a big role in this. And I think that's one of the areas that is the most politically popular when it comes to climate policy and is also one of the most common sense. And so that's something that we talked a lot about and we worked, we held a press conference with a number of other organizations at COP on the topic of natural climate solutions. I'd say another area that is a bit more domestically focused, but I think that is relevant for a lot of countries around the world, is actually getting the government out of the way um, of building clean energy projects. We really see this challenge right now here in the United States. The government spent a whole lot of money on uh, for the Inflation Reduction Act on uh, climate policies and clean energy. But in fact, it's actually very hard to build things here in the United States right now, whether you're talking about transmission lines or a, a new wind factory. So that's another area. And then finally, I just say that there's a lot of momentum around nuclear right now. Um, as I mentioned, there's, uh, I think, a lot of people having to think about climate change in a much more realistic way now. Um, and I think that there's a growing movement, particularly of young people who are saying, we cannot tackle this issue of climate change and also have energy security without this baseload carbon-free source of energy that is nuclear. So just, those are just a few of the things that were really rose above uh, in this conference. Well, that is good to hear. Quill, as you look at the folks that come to an event like COP27, the, the international environmental uh, activist community, but also advocate community, I, I know some, there are some very cool-headed folks that go to these things. As you look at their makeup, are the market-based approaches working in countries besides the United States? Are we seeing political leaders elsewhere in the world go, okay, maybe we can use incentives and voluntary work to make things happen? Or, or is the U.S. really the leader in that regard on, on climate stuff? Well, I, I think we, we know that a lot of people who show up at this event are pretty out of touch and um, have some pretty fantastical ideas about how we're going to tackle this issue of climate change. But I was really encouraged by a lot of the folks that I met there I'll just mention we met with a group called uh, Atoms for Climate, and it was a group of young international people from a whole variety of different countries who were supporting nuclear energy as a solution to climate change. We also, in fact, met with um, a number of politicians around the world who are all on the right side of the aisle and were very supportive of market-based solutions. And then I'll also say we were attending COP with a group of six Republican members of Congress 
who have really gotten in the game here and recognize the importance um, of being in these conversations. At, at ACC, we've always said that you got to have a seat at the table if you want to have a voice in the conversation. I think Republicans in Congress, namely John Curtis from Utah, Dan Crenshaw from Texas, Garrett Graves from Louisiana, um, who are all there, have really taken a leading role and taken that to heart. Um, and they were very strong voices for the United States and for market-based solutions uh, at COP in Sharm el-Sheikh. All right. Well, you know, while we're thinking about what ACC does and the mission, working with, with younger folks here in the political process, getting them engaged, it seems as when we hear a lot of concern about climate change, it seems to emanate from that younger generation. And some of the calls for perhaps more aggressive action do seem to come from, from younger folks. I'm curious, how is the message of, of let's using markets and prices resonating with young people? Are you seeing your ranks grow? Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely say yes. We conducted a poll earlier this year and we we actually found that a majority of young Democrats, as well as a majority of young Republicans, said that they want an approach to climate change that balances uh, environmental concerns and economic concerns. I think that it's a very vocal, but it's a small minority of young people who are willing to tank our economy and abandon capitalism in the fight against climate change. I can tell you most of us want to have a job and a, and a healthy planet to live on. Um, and I think particularly with gas prices right now and the state of the economy, um, with energy prices, that there's a recognition that there is a price to bad climate policy. But if we get this right and we focus on good climate policy, we can achieve those mutual goals of a healthy economy and a sustainable planet. So I really do think that our ranks are growing. All right, Quilt. Well, let's bring it back home. You've gone to Egypt. You've engaged with all of these folks on the global scene. Now you're coming back. We've got a new Congress coming into power, the 118th in January. Looking at climate change proposals for this next Congress, are you anticipating any big changes here domestically? Well, I think the big change that has happened in the, in the last Congress, the 117th Congress, is Republicans really got engaged on this issue of climate change. We saw the creation of the Conservative Climate Caucus, now the second largest caucus in Congress. We also saw the House Republicans release a climate plan. And so we're really living, living in a different world here where we're in a stage of competition of ideas over the best solutions to climate change, as opposed to one party talking about it and the other party not talking about it. So going into next Congress, that's really exciting for me. While it is a divided Congress, I think that that's actually an opportunity for more uh, rigorous and pragmatic climate change policy. Um, and then I, I think just a couple of things that are top of mind for me and that really represent the best opportunities are probably permitting reform, again, getting the government out of the way of building these new clean energy projects, natural climate solutions, planting more trees, um, of course, implementing natural climate solutions with the Farm Bill, and then continuing the fight on nuclear energy as well. So I am optimistic that there are going to be some opportunities for some good bipartisan climate policy next Congress. All right. Well, we will wait and see what happens as that Congress gets set. There's always so much to do as these new folks move into D.C. and they get up to speed on the issues that matter. Folks, we have been speaking with Quill Robinson. He's the vice president of advocacy at the American Conservation Coalition. Quill, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we'll be speaking with Julia Harris, the senior policy analyst at the Bipartisan Policy Center, about how rural health care has changed here over the past few years. Stick around for more AOA after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike. 
block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seat has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. With Harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on Harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you lose bush bushels, but also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. 
Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Boy, last week was a noted national day that I didn't celebrate here on the show. November 17th was National Rural Health Day. And of course, as so many of our listeners here are in rural America, I thought this would be a great time to check in on, well, the temperature of rural health care across, uh, across America. And to help us do that, we're joined now by Julia Harris. She's a senior policy analyst in the Health Policy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And Julia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Let's start first. You specialize in rural health. So if you would give us the, the snapshot, how has rural health changed broadly since the start of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so many um, big changes. So, But even before COVID, um, rural communities were struggling with hospital closures. They had an older, sicker population and really a lot of difficulty recruiting and retaining healthcare workers. Um, the pandemic deepened a lot of this crisis. Um, the healthcare workforce challenges in America uh, continue to impact nationally, but really deeply in rural areas. Uh, they already had trouble recruiting and retaining staff, but that became sort of another pandemic on top of COVID. We saw um, many more people sick with COVID and dying from COVID in rural areas. And uh, on the other hand, we also saw the promise of some telehealth flexibilities that were afforded during uh, the public health emergency time, which we are currently still in. And that really made uh, substantial inroads in the convenience and utility of care. And we saw some really interesting things emerge about how people in rural America were using telehealth. Um, and it's really sort of a bright spot among a lot of other difficulties and challenges during the pandemic. You know, it, it has been, as I talk to folks across rural America, the ability to call in particularly for those little things that might have been a visit 20, 30, 40 minutes away for a nurse practitioner for a quick script. Now they can just do it via telehealth. But you mentioned those were afforded because of the pandemic emergency. Julia, what happens as we move farther from the COVID pandemic? Are these telehealth options going to go away? It is possible. And we uh, at the Bipartisan Policy Center are actually working 
to stop that from happening. So it is anticipated that as we go into next year in 2023, the uh, federal COVID-19 public health emergency will end. And a lot of the flexibilities, um, among them the telehealth flexibilities, are tied to that designation. And <clears throat> many people are looking at, you know, what we, did we get, what did we gain from giving people this kind of access and working very hard to try and um, continue that flexibility going forward. I'll, I'll say one thing, we, we did an actually analysis of traditional Medicare beneficiaries and how did they use telehealth services over the pandemic. And we actually found that many Medicare beneficiaries were newly accessing mental health and substance use treatment via telehealth. So 44% of all behavioral health visits, which is your mental health and substance use treatment visits in 2021 were delivered to Medicare beneficiaries via telehealth, and 65% of those were with new providers, new provider relationships. So really a big um, early indication that a lot of people were leveraging these flexibilities, especially in tight-knit rural communities where there may be a stigma associated with accessing that kind of care, um, that they were actually getting new care, new treatment. So very promising. And um, yeah, we, we definitely are looking forward to 2023 to try and um, move forward, keeping that care uh, access point in place for folks. You know, that uh, that stigma aspect is a great one in a small community if there's a behavioral therapist's office. And yeah, folks might know that's your truck parked up front, but that's not the case if you can call in from home. Julia, with regard to maintaining some of these flexibilities that have provided benefits to rural America, is, is congressional action required? What's the best course of action for folks out here who have benefited from these programs to make our voices heard, to keep them around? Yes, congressional action for a lot of these major changes would be needed. Um, the administration has made um, of the flexibilities uh, uh, last through the end of 2023 that it that flexibility to access care from the comfort of their homes. Uh, that's something that we would need Congress to act on. Um, and so there are several other things that really fall on Congress and the 118th Congress and this new Congress to really work out the future of telehealth. All right. Well, folks, get active if that's something you rely on there in your farm or ranch. Julia, we also see in 2023 the Rural Emergency Hospital Model coming to fruition. Real briefly, could you tell us what that is and why it matters to rural America? This is a new designation, um, similar to how um, a few decades ago, the critical access hospital model came to be. This is a new um, type of uh, provider that we can look forward to converting some of our current hospitals that are struggling into this new type of model. Um, as we go forward, we see <clears throat> a lot of rural hospitals have struggled for decades. Um, a lot of closures came um, over the past 10 years. and one of the reasons for that is they have very low inpatient rates. Many people drive a little further to go to a major metro area, bypassing sort of their local community hospital for many types of services. 
And so what that does is it adds additional strain to those rural providers. And this new model allows some of those sites where it makes sense, it's not for every location and not for every community, but it allows them to convert and just be sort of an emergency, an emergency and urgent care provider and deliver outpatient services. Okay, some increasing flexibility coming to rural hospitals. Julia Harris, the Senior Policy Analyst for Health at Bipartisan Policy Center. Julia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And folks, tune in tomorrow for Thanksgiving. We will have a fresh episode here of AOA for you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you lose bush bushels, but also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.